Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us. Hi, my name is Ken Gordon from the Refugee Voices Scotland podcast. From the 17th until the 28th of May this year, 2021, the UNESCO Vila team organised their annual spring school, The Arts of Integrating. I was there and interviewed Nazek Ramadan on Zoom in front of a live virtual audience. We're now releasing this interview as a joint episode on both the Refugee Voices Scotland podcast and the UNESCO Rila podcast. Enjoy! Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Um, that was just, again, the dulcet tones of the Ha Orchestra and the Cloisters at University of Glasgow. Um, and just want to also welcome everybody here um, to our Refugee Voices Scotland live podcast interview. I'm Lauren Roberts. I'm one of the Secretariat Coordinators at UNESCO Rila. And it's my pleasure to introduce you to another session, day eight of our spring school. Um, so the live podcast interview is going to be with Ken Gordon of Refugee Voices Scotland and Nazek Ramadan of Migrant Voice. So a little bit of background about our guests today. So Refugee Voices Scotland is a podcast about refugees and refugee support organisations in Scotland, which is recorded by Ken. It's an attempt to correct the imbalance of the information available through the media. Yes of uh, Refugee Voices Scotland podcast is to make a difference in public attitudes to refugees in Scotland and in the UK and to help in efforts to make refugees feel safe and secure in Scotland to increase the confidence of the refugees to tell their stories and to help integrate them further into their Scottish communities and community groups. Ken and Sadie Ryan of the Accentricity podcast produce a guest series and you'll find this on our website and we'll also pop a link to this in our chat. Um, so now on to our interviewee, which is Nazek Ramadan, who is the director of Migrant Voice. Migrant Voice is a migrant-led organisation working to amplify migrant voices in the media and public life to counter xenophobia and to build support for their rights and their communities. So migration builds, brings a wealth of benefits to Britain and Migrant Voice believes that the best antidote to divisive rhetoric is real stories told by real people. Migrant Voice brings migrants from all backgrounds together, discusses their concerns and translates them into innovative campaigns or research projects to ensure these important issues are not forgotten. Migrant Voice offers professional media training, support and connections with media. Their work makes national headlines on TV, local radio and in the newspapers and magazines. And they've branched out also into digital media. Migrant Voice has regional hubs in London, Birmingham and Glasgow. A membership is open to all migrants and non-migrants wanting to engage in creative and positive change. And we'll also pop Migrant Voices website details into the chat. Nazek is a, a migrant herself and has been in the UK for 35 years. Um, Nazek is all originally from the Lebanon, was born and lived in the capital Beirut before she left the war-torn country and moved with her young family to London. So if you have any questions or comments, please pop them in the chat and we'll address them at the Q&A at the end of the session. So now I'm going to pass over to Ken. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Lauren. That was a lovely intro. Um, welcome, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you all are in the world. Uh, so my name's Ken Gordon. I work, I make Refugee Voices Scotland podcasts. I'm delighted to be talking to Nazek Ramadan, the director at Migrant Voice, um, and also a, a migrant. Um, Nazek, hi. Hi, Let's wave. hello, hi. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're down in London, aren't you? Uh, yes, I am. Yes, but I, I right. do visit uh, Glasgow regularly. Just to, just so you know, and if you've been to Glasgow, the weather's fantastic, as it always is in Scotland. <laughs> um, Nazek, can you tell me a bit about yourself and how you came to be in the UK? Wow, this was a long time ago. So uh, 
I'm, as uh, Lauren introduced me, so I'm originally from the Lebanon. And uh, yes, I came in the middle of the civil war. We had uh, well, lots of civil wars in Lebanon. I came uh, in the middle of the last, last one uh, and uh, joined my husband who was in UK. So I had uh, my two kids, they were three and four at the time. And we decided, uh, you know, it was no longer safe uh, to stay in Lebanon, even though, I mean, I lived throughout most of the war. And, you know, you keep hoping that the situation will change, it will improve, you can live your life. And I'm a, I am one of those people who never thought I would leave my country or I would live anywhere else. But then it becomes impossible to, to live, really, to have a normal life. And, uh, and if you have young family, you need to think of the future. So... Uh, it felt to us at that time that, you know, we had no future back there and we need to uh, to move elsewhere. Uh, yeah, thank you. This is why how we ended up in the UK. And um, what's led you to, to think about and to set up Migrant Voice? Uh, well, uh, Migrant Voice uh, came after years and years of thinking, really. So since I came to the UK, I engaged with lots of uh, migrant uh, communities and migrant organizations, uh, volunteers with lots of organizations and, and then worked also in that sector for many years. And it became clear to me over the years that uh, migrants didn't have a voice and that everyone's talking about them and they are not really engaged. And, uh, you know, there are like two in parallel worlds, if you want. And, and we felt that, you know, we need to engage, migrants need to engage in order to change things, in, in order to improve our lives, in order to actually to feel that we truly belong to these communities where we now call home, we need to engage more, we need to make our voices heard. But the situation, of course, uh, became worse uh, just before the 2010 general election. I think it was at that time when it was, you know, uh, we felt that we as migrants, well, actually we need to step it up and we need to come forward and we need to engage in the debate. Uh, the 2010 general election, everyone was talking about migrants, uh, except migrants. Uh, almost every political parties were describing migrants as one of the main concerns for the UK alongside the NHS and the financial crisis. So you just, you know, imagine yourself <clears throat> on the other side of the screen and you're a migrant and you're watching the news and you're watching politicians not just ordinary people or people who don't know migrants. You watch really, those are the future leaders of the country using migrants to gain uh, votes and, and describing us as a challenge, as a problem to the country. When we know as migrants, we are not a problem. Actually, we contribute to the country. We keep the NHS healthy. We keep the education sector running. We keep the agriculture sector running. We, have, we keep so many sectors running. I mean, we are the reason maybe the UK didn't do as badly in the financial crisis. We're aware of that, but then this is what we get on, uh, on TV and this is what we hear and this is how we've been used in the media by politicians. And everyone, as I said, talking about us without us. And we felt, you know what, I think we need to do something to stop this because at the end of the day, we as migrants, this is gonna affect us. Uh, and at the, at the time when we set up Migrant Voice, I'll, uh, I gave this example before, but I'm happy to give it again. Even in one uh, London borough, there were on average three to four or five daily attacks, physical or verbal attacks on migrants or people who looked like migrants. So we know on the street how we you know what politicians say, how this is interpreted on the ground against us and against our children, <laughs> our families. But of course, before that, I worked with other organizations where we used to meet as migrants uh, uh, and talk uh, about the, how we feel about the media coverage. I think in many occasions where we sat together and you know, we many of us felt we are helpless. Uh, we hear this, we read this story about us. We know it's not accurate, it's not true, it's very damaging. And some people, you know, were telling us some migrants were telling us how upset and angry they felt, but how helpless they felt, and how you know they went just home and closed the door and, and you know felt sorry for themselves, miserable, and not knowing what to do about it. So as I said, before that, we were thinking about it. We, this was an issue for us. It was a problem and we didn't know how to address it. Uh, but as I said, before the general election, when the situation really became too bad, we felt now it's the time. Actually, we need to come forward now. And this is so important that we migrants, 
we need to decide. We need to speak for ourselves. We need to come forward and challenge politicians and tell them what you're saying isn't accurate and challenge the media. Because the media at that time, I mean, still till now, is much better now. But before, the stories about migration, they don't quote a migrant. Only a tiny percentage of them quote a migrant. So it's, it's very important issue. It's all over the news, but not, they're not the migrants who are talking about migrants. They are politicians or a shopkeeper or a so-called expert. So we felt, you know, now it's the time. Let's you know, let's engage with the media. Let's let's talk. Let's speak for ourselves. Let's go to the media and tell the journalists, if you want to write about migrants or migration, come and talk to us. Hear it from us, because you wouldn't get away with it as a journalist if you're talking about women's issues and involving only men. You won't see a group of men talking about women's issues, or you won't. You know, if you're talking about disability, you won't see a group of healthy people talking about disability. So why do you do that for migrants? So, uh, I mean, this is when all this started and we came as, uh, I mean, it was a group of us as migrants. We felt it's a time now we set up our own movement. We started as a movement uh, and we link up and this is why we're a national organization because we wanted to connect to migrants across the UK. So this is why it was the London, the West Midlands and the Scottish regions where we migrants are also talking to each other, supporting each other uh, developing our skills and confidence and, you know, build a relationship with journalists, understanding how the uh, public uh, receive and, you know, and perceive information, etc. How do they respond and how the best way to address it? Because as, as a migrant, when you come to this country, you don't, you don't have your, in your mind that, oh, I need to know how to talk to the media, how to engage with the media. This is not something you think about. <laughs> you just come in here for a new life, but then you discover that oh, well, I need to say something uh, in order for me to integrate, to settle down, to have a stability and safety. So this is, uh, maybe I spoke a lot, this is where it all started from, my divorce. The One of the things, so you're taking on the existing British media in its might and uh, in its biases. What? How long did it take you to, to feel that you were actually making a difference and that you were getting traction and people were beginning to consult you from when you started with this, challenge, how long did it take you before you began to feel that you were making a difference? I mean, we were pleasantly surprised with the, how ready the media was <laughs> to talk to us. And uh, there was one conference at the time when we set up the organization uh, around that time where uh, some journalists were challenged about their coverage of migration. This was a conference about the coverage of the uh, charity sector. And journalists said, well, we have nothing against migrants. We would like to talk to them. Where are they? Uh, so when we actually set up, actually journalists were very pleased, actually delighted to see, oh, wow, great. Are you here? Yes, we'll talk to you. Uh, what we needed to do is to, uh, to just tell them we're here, to build a relationship with them, to understand how they work and how the British media works and how the British public respond to the stories. Uh, so we know how to engage. So it, it took us some time maybe to learn this, these skills and to have this knowledge. But then when we start to approach the journalists, they were very open in, uh, to us. And some of them were very supportive. I mean, our first few meetings took place in, I mean, we were meeting in newspapers and TV stations because the journalists were giving them their venues to come and meet and to develop our skills and confidence because they were pleased to see their markets. Now they know where to go. Uh, I mean, also this is the same story. It's not just the journalists who didn't know how to engage with the migrants. But as I said, we didn't know how to engage with journalists. Uh, but also, I mean, once at one of our meetings, as I said, we were discussing the media coverage and how we felt about it. And uh, one of our members said once, uh, how do they hate us so much? when they don't even know us. I mean, this, what, this is how strong the feelings were amongst migrants. And I said, because they don't know us, because they don't know us and you know, we need to engage with them. So I think for us, this uh, experiment worked really well because we found that journalists were very open to listen to us. Uh, they even, they still till today come train us and respond to us. They call us now when they're working on a story, they call us for court or for person. So I think our, uh, you know, uh, strategy worked well. Uh, and uh, this, as I said, we were surprised and pleasant that actually journalists do want to talk to us and they were happy to see us and they be, they were supportive. I mean, and, and I must say that uh, 
maybe 11 and a half years now, my voice we've been running. That uh, I don't recall we had a negative story. I mean, because we were about building bridges. We were about talking. He said, you know, write about us, come and talk to us. We're happy to engage with you. We're happy to tell you our stories. And so our approach is from the start, it's about building bridges and, and connection and communications and engaging. Because after all, he said, look, this is also our home. And, and we need to feel this is our home. And, and we, you know, one of the ways is we need to have a voice. We can't be part of the community. Uh, we can't feel integrated in the community. We can't feel we belong to the community until we know that we have a voice and, uh, and our voices are equally heard. So it was, a, I think it was a, a positive experience and, and successful so far. That's really interesting. And also is um, thinking about the press and how things have moved away from newspapers. Do you have, what have you found about what the most effective way to communicate is now? Has that changed from when you started? The most effective route, if you like? Uh, I mean, I think now there is more maybe focus on, on digital media and on uh, TV and radios and uh, newspapers. <clears throat> when we started, a lot of our work was uh, with the newspapers and magazines. But I think now maybe we're doing more social media stuff and uh, more maybe TVs and, and radios. I mean, I don't think there's a lot of difference. I think for us, we needed to learn the, the right skills. We need to know how to, to address the rich public because remember the media is a platform for us, is a tool, is a platform where we reach out to the community, to the British public and tell them who they are and engage with them directly and tell them our stories. And again, it's one of the platforms and tools where we approach politicians because in the past we didn't have these connections and uh, everyone was using the media as a platform. Now we do engage directly as well with policymakers because you know all this confidence and skills we built over the years, we started to engage more with politicians and policymakers because we know how to talk. The, the secret for us is to learn, to understand how the media work because lots of migrants were terrified of engaging with the media. Some of them come from countries where maybe they don't have a democracy and the people don't talk. They, they don't come from a culture where you speak about your life, where you go on TV or radio or paper and tell, tell all. This is not from the culture because they're terrified of speaking. And indeed, some people were still terrified because they were worried if, if uh, authorities in their countries, they find out they're speaking, they might hurt their families back home. So we had lots of issues we needed to overcome. Uh, and also how to, as I said, because migrants were not expert on talking to the media, it's something new to us. So we needed to, <clears throat> to practice, to train, to understand, you know, if we are asked a different question, how do you answer it without losing confidence and how to respond to that? But most importantly, it was very important for us to think of the audiences because, you know, the public was really our audiences and we needed to know what work with them, how would they respond and react to our story? Uh, what is the best tone, the best style? What should we be saying? And I think this, uh, from our experience, this really worked well because we are talking to people who, when we speak to the media, we always keep in mind that uh, think, we're thinking of the audiences of people who are watching us or listening to us or reading our story. They are people who may or may not know anything about migrants and migration. And this is the first opportunity for us to address them in order to bring them on board and to get them to support us. How, how do we address them? How would we address them? And this is what influenced the way we speak and we tell the stories and we build support. As I said, we're about <clears throat> engaging and building connection, building support, because you know we want to feel this is our home after all, and we want to feel we belong here. You've certainly been very successful going through my research. The number of times you appear in, on major news websites and in major newspapers. Um, one of the campaigns that, that, that really has recently or in the recent past has been very prominent is the campaign around students and the international student visa problem or scandal, whatever, however you want to describe it. How, how did you get engaged in that? And, and did you have, how did you um, manage that as, a, as an issue? Well, I mean, as a, as a migrant-led organization, uh, so we are a, almost a platform for any migrant to come and tell their story and to speak, and this is why we set up. So we speak about issue affecting, uh, issues affecting our lives. Uh, and we don't train people to become experts on migration. We are all experts in our own experience, in our own life, in what we face. We don't train people to speak about migration. 
so, uh, and we have uh, lots of meetings, network meetings uh, across the regions where we have safe spaces for migrants and non-migrants, of course, everyone is welcome. It's an open space uh, and safe space for people to come and talk about issues affecting their lives, what's happened in their lives, uh, how, you know, how they feel about the media coverage or certain policies affecting them. So we provide those spaces and all the issues we, we raise and try to get out in the media comes from those spaces. So we start from the individual's experience, real life experience, because after all, this is what migrants are you know, experts in. Uh, but we are also approached by other by migrants who come to us. So the, the students, the international students, uh, a group of them came to us, approached us after trying so many different places and journalists and organizations. Uh, uh, and they heard, uh, actually it was a journalist who actually referred them to Magic Boys and said to them, look, you're all over the place. Uh, go and speak to this organization, they will support you and then come back to me. Uh, so uh, they came to us and said, we are facing this huge injustice. Uh, can you help us? Uh, now, before that, I mean, this, uh, a campaign transformed the way we work as Magic Voice because before that, all our campaigns are really media campaigns, try to raise awareness, try to have a voice, to engage in the debate, uh, but not too, too much to push for policy change. And when we saw those group of students who came and, and met with us, when we heard their story, we felt, you know, if they come to us, we can't turn them away. They're migrants as well, and they're facing huge injustice. And uh, we, we need to give them a voice and we need to do something about it. Uh, and the story briefly of those students, uh, uh, I mean, the group of them who came to me, uh, they spoke about uh, a, a panorama program on TV, showed there's a, some uh, cheating at a couple of testing centers uh, for international students who are meant to do English language tests every time they renew their visa. And one of those, uh, uh, companies, uh, agencies that, you know, facilitate this, that's uh, the Panorama program discovered there are cheating uh, at a couple of those centers. Now there are, of course, 97, I think, or 96 centers in UK <laughs> for this agency. Uh, now the government response was to this program to uh, almost criminalize any student who actually took that test. And it was called the TOEIC test at that time. Uh, and we're talking about, uh, tens of thousands of international students. Uh, the initial number were maybe 56,000 students actually who uh, uh, applied for that test. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to cut the story short, but you know, mm. <clears throat> so we have tens of thousands of students, international students who are accused of cheating in a test without giving them the evidence, without, you know, giving them the evidence that they cheated and most of them did not cheat. Mm. And without most of them, a lot of them uh, did not get the, the chance to defend themselves. Some of them, many of them were detained. Hundreds of them were detained. Hundreds of thousands of them were deported. They were treated like criminal. And, and we're talking about young men and women who are coming to the UK for the best experience in the world, for one of the best education in the world. Their families put all the life savings to pay for those students to come to the UK. And then they find themselves trapped in a situation, in an impossible situation. They find themselves accused of a crime they haven't committed without evidence against them being presented, without them having the opportunity to defend themselves. And they treat like criminals, detained, some of them deported. Uh, they didn't know how to get out of it. I and mean, some of them said, were told you can appeal from abroad. Others were told you cannot appeal from abroad. I mean, it was a nightmare. And this, they all talk about young men and women. Uh, some of them, their families did not believe them. I think they didn't just you know, lose their future and their family's life saving and their reputation. You know, Those people, their families didn't trust them anymore because they said to them, no, you must be lying. This could not happen in the UK. <laughs> UK is a country of the law and whatever, all that. So their families have high, you know, uh, they, they see uh, the UK uh, highly differently. And they thought maybe their sons and daughters brought shame on the families. And some families disowned their sons and daughters for bringing shame on them and for wasting their life savings. I mean, these were the students I was talking to. And some of them were on medication to stop them killing themselves. I mean, for us, we just could not sit back and say, sorry, we can't help you. I mean, this is, you know, they fit, they tick all our boxes. If, you know, we have a list of priorities where to prioritize our resources, 
I mean, they ticked all the boxes and we took them, we worked with them because they need to tell their own stories. I think what we help them is to understand how the media work, to articulate their story, to tell their story in a simple way that anyone who's selling fruits in the market can understand and support. And we developed a campaign and we worked with MPs. Now we're very proud of this campaign, but you know, as I said, we have hundreds of students who came with us and told their own stories. And, and, and this is what works. I think, you know, the, the most effective story is a story when a person who's affected by an issue is he or she, they are talking about, you know, their own story. Uh, and this has proved to be, I mean, so far it's been successful. And we are aware of uh, hundreds of students who are getting their visas as a result. And some of them are, you know, having their names cleared. Now, this is not the end of it because this, the campaign is still ongoing and there are still some issues and there are still some students who are still fighting to clear their names. Because remember, if those students, if they went back to the countries without clearing their names, this is why a few of them stayed here for a few years, destitute, sofa surfing, struggling, I mean, living in an impossible uh, situation because they knew if they don't clear their names here, their future ends here and then. There, because if they go back home, they can't go back to any university because of this record, this uh, accusation hanging over them. They cannot uh, be, find a job, no one will employ them. They can't take a visa to travel anywhere. And some of them we know already their families disown them. So it was really important for them that even if they sit on seat, they need to clear their names. So um, we really, you know, uh, this is one of our proudest campaigns that many of them now have managed to clear their names. Those who are still in UK, we're not talking about those who were deported or left. We only work with marks in UK. Uh, so this is, uh, the campaign is still going uh, until uh, hopefully all or most of the students uh, manage to clear their names and, and go back to building their lives again. And some of them were really delighted to hear from those who have cleared their names, how they started new businesses. They start to look forward to the future. So they have uh, their future back and the campaign was called My Future Back. That's, that's really good to hear that you're making that impact and that the level of activation that you managed to achieve, you've managed to achieve results. As you will know, and as we will see in the press, we're back to having Don raids up here in Glasgow. And in the recent Queen's speech, Home Office reform of the asylum system, including taking legal rights away from people who need protection, seems to be unstoppable or, or progressing, if you like, which is disappointing to everyone. What can we do? And what, what, how can, what, in your opinion, can we do to stop this? And how, what are Migrant Voice doing? I mean, what we are doing is we are trying to make our views clear on that. Uh, I don't know how much we can do, but I guess we all of us need to say this is wrong. I think our biggest concern is the uh, idea that those people who uh, make their own way to the UK to claim asylum, they will be penalized and uh, they will not get uh, protection rights and they'll be treated differently and they'll be subject to detention, to deportation. And the government want to choose uh, to bring, who to bring to the UK through these uh, uh, resettlement schemes uh, from refugee camps across the world. I mean, we think this is a big mistake. Uh, I've been to some of those refugee camps. I've seen people, uh, the conditions they are living in. And I'm aware of people who spent years, years in horrible conditions and situation and in very vulnerable and dangerous situations in those camps. And I don't think a lot of them can wait a number of years for the government to decide who they're gonna save, who they will give the opportunity to start a new life. And, it, and somehow if you have agency and you decide, you know, I wanna do something, I wanna save my family, I wanna take my children, I wanna get out of here because I want safety. I mean, we would all do that. Who wouldn't do this if you, you were in, in their shoes? Would you not do this? I would do this if I was. I wouldn't wait in any way. I mean, the government, the resettlement scheme is a great, is a brilliant scheme, by the way, and it's perfect. But the percentage of people who need protection, who access this scheme, is, a, is very minute, is a small, is, is tiny fraction of the number. We have millions of people around the world who need protection. And the government policy is actually ending protection the way we know it. You cannot penalize someone just because they have agency, just because actually they made the effort to, to, to you know, get their family out of dangerous situation in search of safety and new lives. I mean, I, I come from Lebanon and, and two years ago, we have refugees in camps in the mountains, 
freezing to death children, I'm talking about children, freezing to death in, in tents in the snow. I mean, you know, I think the government need to go, uh, those politicians need to go to those camps and need to see for themselves the condition and need to see who is there, who are the people who are waiting to be saved. And how long, if you were there, I mean, I know of myself, if I was in those camps, I wouldn't want to stay for a day in that camp. And I want to save my family and I want to do anything I can in my power to save my family, to save my children. Uh, we would all do that. And, and just to say, no, you wait for us and we will decide how many we wanted to save and who, you know, the, the lucky chosen ones and the rest of you, we're going to let you rot in those camps. I think it's just, it's not practical. Uh, it's not reasonable. It's not humane. It's just against, it goes against not just our moral values and, and who we are as a human being against all the international uh, protection, uh, you know, laws and, and treaties that uh, we are signatories of. Uh, it just, I mean, I can't see it how, how I can't see it how it works. Uh, and, I, and there is a good reason. I think the government uh, think that they, this way they can stop people from making their own journeys. And this is not true because if you live in a dangerous situation, you really need to do anything uh, to, to save your children and your lives and to go to somewhere safe and to start building your life. Uh, I remember in one of the trips to Calais, I went a few times to Calais a few years ago, and I saw a, a young mom with a child who was ill, had a temperature at the time. And I said to her, are you mad? Why do you want to go to the UK? How are you going to jump over the fence? I mean, we were having this kind of conversations with, the, with migrants who work in Calais trying to come to the UK. And she said to me, because this is the only way I can go there. My husband is there and I need to be with him. I mean, you know, there is a good reason why people want still to come here to join family. And we know how difficult it is and how hard it is for migrants in the UK to have their families. So, I think we need to change the way we looked at, at protection issues, at we look at asylum seekers. They're you know, human beings. This could be any one of us. <laughs> uh, and this is not the way to treat people. We should stop treating them as numbers. We should stop, uh, stop treating them just to, for votes or to, for scaremongering. We should really treat, they are human beings like us and they are in difficult situation and we need to treat them differently. And until, unless uh, we change, until we change the attitude we're treating asylum seekers at the moment, we won't move. I mean, all those policies, they are, you know, a step again, we keep going backwards uh, with those policies. And I, I can't see how it's going to work. I mean, we're all, I'm very concerned because as I say, I know the people who are actually waiting in camps. Uh, I mean, recently we spoke to a group of Eritreans in uh, Libya and some of them were, were in detention center inside the, in Libya, uh, not for committing any crimes because they want to, you know, flee and come to Europe. And uh, they were forgotten. I mean, some of them were young, young men fleeing uh, persecution and war and being forgotten for three years, three and a half years in horrific conditions in the desert in the detention center. I mean, we're talking about desperate people. Is this the way that we want to treat human beings? I mean, you know, we have lots of questions, Margaret Boss, that would like uh, politicians to answer, to look at, but I think they're out of touch with the real world. They need to go to see those people, to talk to them, to understand the situation, and then develop their policies accordingly. And do you think, uh, given the point you made earlier about um, politicians using this as a leverage point, uh, they all know the story. They know that migrants aren't an, a problem in this country, but they're using it to get votes. Do you think that even if presented with the evidence that they would make a, that would change their minds? I guess what would change their mind is the public uh, support. I think if more of the public, you know, disagree with the government and supporting migrants and refugees and asylum seekers, then the government probably would feel under pressure to change its policies because the government using these tactics to gain votes. But if they think, oh, well, this is not gonna work because actually the public does not agree with us and they want us to treat people differently, things would change. And this is why Magin Voice, our audience, the main audience we were reaching out to through the media is the public, is uh, members of the host community. And this is why it was very important for us to build this connection and to engage in that debate. I think we need to change the whole debate in the country about migration and making sure that migrants are part of that conversation, are part of this debate, and we are all talking about it together. And I think what you've seen in Glasgow recently is a great example. And it's not the first example, actually, you know, Glasgow, Scotland leads in those examples and how the community step forward to support a group of people and to say to the, the home office, no, we will not agree to that. Uh, 
So we've seen how you know their support uh, coming around those people have temporarily at least stopped. But in the past, we know that dawn raids were stopped because a lot of Scottish people said, no, we don't agree with this happening. And they stood up and they came forward. So I think having the, the public support is really important as well. We'll come back to how people, what people should do having listened to this um, interview at, at the end. But what's intriguing me is you've demonstrated uh, such strength, such passion, such uh, sense of right. Uh, wh where does that come from in, in your background? Where, well, where, do you mean, where, do you, where does your inspiration and your energy come from? Uh, right. Well, I mean, I'm someone who lived, as I said, uh, uh, in the war, in, some, in a number of wars, and I spent my, you know, young years uh, on and off <laughs> uh, in war situations. So I understand. Uh, and uh, I also I've seen people come and moving from one part of the Lebanon, it depends on where the fighting is taking place and people move from one area to another. And I've hosted people who fled another part of the country to come to my house. And when I fled my area, I had to go to another part, people welcome me. So I'm someone who understand What's it like to be in a war zone? What's it like to actually live in, you know, not knowing if you're going to survive the day or not? You know, uh, I'm one of those people who I, I remember having, I had two young children. I remember having near my door uh, a bag, uh, underground shelter bag, where I had to milk and food and water in case the fighting escalates and I had to take my children and grab them and run to the underground shelter. I wouldn't have time. I have this bag was ready on the door. I mean, I know what's like, I know how it feels like, you know, I've, I've been through it. So this is why this is something I feel passionate about. And I think, you know, you're talking about people who have jobs and families and, and homes, but you know, they went through the war and everything changed and we should treat them as the people who they are. Uh, I have, well, when I came to the UK, my experience, uh, I mean, in general, my experience is great and I'm really grateful and I'm uh, uh, very happy here and I can call it home. Uh, but when I came the first few years, uh, it wasn't easy, actually. I just left the war and I was traumatized by the war. And when I came, I find, well, I find some people who are very welcoming and reassuring, and that made a huge difference to me. It really it has. Uh, and this is why I encourage everyone, if you meet someone who newly arrived, please make them feel welcome, just a smile at them. And, you know, it's, it makes a huge difference to them. But I've had people who resented me and uh, I faced racism and discrimination myself, and I didn't understand why. Uh, and this is a story I've mentioned many times before. I lived for a few months in an area in East London where uh, just people, because they didn't have many migrants there, uh, some people resented, uh, resented me and my family there. And uh, really, I mean, they, might, they made my life really difficult uh, that year, but uh, I'll just mention one of those examples. <laughs> And one old uh, lady used to send her dog to chase me and my kids. So I used to do to take a long detour to go to school to avoid going near her house. And I don't know her and she doesn't know me. And, and if she sees me in the shop, local shop, she will start, I mean, insulting me. Uh, luckily at that time, my English wasn't good. So I didn't know what she was saying, but I could tell she's shouting at me. <laughs> and for me, that was, you know, traumatizing. It was too much. And I just didn't understand what she was saying. I didn't understand what does she have against me? I mean, I haven't done anything to her. She doesn't know me. I mean, I, you know, many years later, one of our members said, how can they hate us so much when they don't even know, know us? Now, uh, this lady, one day before uh, Christmas time, uh, I, she came towards me and I was terrified. I mean, I nearly had a heart attack. She came to me and apologized. She came and, and hugged me and said, please forgive me. And this, you know, this actually had changed the way I, I see people and I respond to them. And she wished me, you know, Merry Christmas, because that was near Christmas time. And I, I don't know what happened to that lady, but she actually one day came and apologized and said, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And she, you know, she gave me a hug. <laughs> uh, now that incident made me think a lot, made me think a lot that, you know, perhaps some people really, they don't mean, I mean, some people do mean to be racist and nasty, but a lot of people don't know. And they just maybe feel threatened somehow. And because maybe I didn't speak language, they don't know you, they don't engage with you. And this is where, actually this was many, many years ago, over 30 years ago, <laughs> maybe the first couple of years when I came to the UK. But it changed the way I think about, you know, living in the UK, about how to respond to people. And if people are, you know, horrible to me, I think I need maybe to engage with them. Maybe they don't, you know, they don't know me and I need to make an effort 
So this maybe many years back helped me and, and I started to engage more with the public. And I remember I had to set up a, a, an Arabic language club, Saturday club, where I brought people to speak about integration, about engaging with the community, about how you can be Lebanese or Muslim or Christian or whatever, and British, and you can belong here. So actually it did influence this, uh, you know, uh, accident earlier on incident, influenced the way I work later on uh, in my life in the UK. But this of course don't happen, you know, this uh, incident don't happen anymore because now I can challenge them because I can, you know, understand English, I can speak and I can actually stop someone from uh, doing this because they know I can speak up and I can, you know, defend myself and I have a voice more importantly. Indeed you do. And uh, what a powerful example that is. Um, before, before I ask you how people can get engaged and support Migrant Voice and support the kind of things that are going, that you're doing, can I just say that if you have a question, you have a chance to drop it in the chat and you can also do it live at the end. So think up those questions. Um, Nazek, so what's the best way we can help? What do you want people to do now? Having, having given the, these, these examples that are moving and powerful, what should we do now? Uh, well, I think the best thing, the first thing people can do is to visit our website and read all the stories and activities that we are running and the campaigns we're running and uh, you know, and come forward and support us. I mean, we have, as I said, we work at the moment in three UK regions and Scotland is one of them. Our office is based in Glasgow, but at the moment we're not working from the office because of the COVID restriction. Soon, hopefully we'll be uh, going back to the office. Uh, we have a fa close face group for each region. So if people want to join, they can join as a member or, I mean, it's a free, it's informal, there's no commitment. People can email us and say, I would, you know, I live in Glasgow in Scotland and I'd like to join this, uh, join Migrant Voice Network there. We have a network that probably have 600 or 700 uh, members in Scotland. And uh, there's wow. a close Facebook uh, page where people can uh, talk to each other and exchange information and engage together. And then you will find out about, uh, you can join our mailing list or uh, to receive our newsletter. And if you join our mailing list, you receive information about our next activities, trainings, campaigns, and you are welcome uh, to join. Uh, our meetings and activities are open to everyone. Everyone is welcome. Thank you, Bella, for putting up the, the Migrant Voice website there. And the email address is also on that website. Thank you very much, Nazik. Um, well, I, I always find doing these interviews, I learn so much and I am inspired. Um, we have time for some questions, which I hope you've been popping into the chat, and I'll hand back to Louise to handle the questions. Thank you very much, Nazek. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank Louise, you so much for having me. Thank you. Louise, over to you. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Um, Nazek, thank you for that fantastic overview of what Migrant Voice does and what um, you know your experiences as well and um, I just wanted to just quickly reflect on something else I'd, I'd heard earlier on today about not cutting off people when they have a different point of view to you um, because they then just retreat into their own echo chamber um, or they only speak to other uh, networks or, or groups that reflect back to them what they, they already believe and the importance of kindly challenging so they can come to some sort of uh, mutual understanding. Um, so uh, thank you very much for making those points. Um, so I think Gamley has his hand raised. Gamley, can you come on in? Yes, thank you, Lauren. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Nazik, for that. I was just super touched by that last example you gave. Um, uh, and I think that we are all capable of embracing each other when we are not afraid, uh, when we are not suspicious, when we are aware that we have the capacity to mutually enrich each other. Uh, and I think you've, you've, you've enriched us so much today with your stories. And that's the power of story. You know, we, we all have stories to tell, but sometimes we don't have the opportunity to tell those stories. Maybe it's, you know, the space is not available. 
the the um the freedom is not available and so if we can create a space and the freedom and the comfortability then the stories flow and then we begin to know each other better and then we begin to move even further from integration to embracing and when we embrace all those issues just melt away so thank you very much and thank you in return i just want to offer you just a piece of music thank you <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Gamli. Um, if, um, if anyone else has anything they might like to, to say or um, come in with, just letting the dance in. Recording in progress. Gamali, is that your hand up again, or are you? Uh... It's not Gamali, it's Nadine Swa. Hi, Nadine Swa. You have something that you want to say, Nadine Swa, or will I ask Alison? She has no, her. no. I was just, I just, I was just listening. <laughs> Sorry. That's <laughs> quite okay, Alison. Yeah, I just didn't want to pass up on the opportunity to um, to speak to Nazak. It's just always such a treat to have you in Glasgow or near Glasgow or on Zoom in Glasgow. And I know at the start you said that um, you um, you come to Glasgow quite a lot. And I just want to say, for the record, it's not enough. <laughs> we <laughs> to have you here more. Um, but yeah, I was just, I was, I, as I always am when I'm listening to you, just um, hearing the energy and the speed uh, at which you think and work and act. And I wondered if over the years um, you, you, you speak about the way that you know what you're doing these days, you know how to speak to journalists, to migrants, to the media. You know, there's a real confidence that comes through in the way you're talking. And you know, I know I've been around you almost since the very start of Migrant Voice and just watched this little acorn grow into this great oak tree, or maybe it should be a cedar cone grow into a great cedar tree um, to, to 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 bring it back to to lebanon and and your home um your your first home and i just wondered um how that confidence now serves you how it helps you and i think it'd be great for people to hear about this because there's a, an amazing new energy around at the moment loads of students and young people particularly sensitized to wanting to just make the world a better place be it in climate change be it be it migrant justice um be it in anti-poverty campaigns just right across the board i see my students um alive with the energy of the possibility and the need the urgency of making the world a better place and that you know people like you and i nazak who are um no longer as young as we were um <laughs> uh, and who were very much on our own in a different generation in trying to hold or protect a little candle flame of justice when a lot of people were comfortable and didn't really feel they needed to engage with this um, you know, we're now in a position where we've had many years of experience and young people will look to us for advice and support. So I just wondered if you might speak a bit about, you know, that confidence and that process of aging that really leads you to have the sort of platform that you have now. Uh, yes, I will try to answer that question. I mean, I'm, yeah, I I'm certainly grew in confidence because uh, many years back, 
I was terrified because I just didn't know, you know, how people think and why people are reacting towards me the way they are. And, uh, you know, even I remember once watching TV, uh, my earliest memory in, in getting, you know, uh, curious about politics, uh, Mrs. Thatcher was prime minister and she was talking about migrants and how they are, uh, the country is uh, whatever, you know, inv- I don't know what the exact word, and this is what actually made me very worried. It was the first time when I thought, oh, this is, isn't just people on the street. Actually, this is uh, almost institutionalized. It's uh, at a higher level. Even the prime minister is actually speaking about us that we've been, whatever, invading the country. Or So I, I became worried. And uh, at that time, we were just terrified. Uh, ter- you're always af- afraid or scared of people you don't know or the things you don't know. But once you know them, uh, things will become much easier. <laughs> And I think this is why earlier on we understood the first thing with the voice is we must understand how the media works because it was for us scary. We didn't know how to engage. We didn't know if we could engage. We didn't know how to change. We, it was for us as you know, far away planet. We thought this is what we need to start. This is starting point. We let's understand. Let's learn this and you know have better knowledge <laughs> how the media works and also not just the media. We were also curious to understand how the British public react what messages you know works with them and what they identify with and what they can they relate to and what they don't and so we had to uh, you know the first i think when we set up we just wanted to learn this we need to uh, to learn because then you know a lot of this fear will go and then we become more confident uh, and then when we started to engage and we saw this positive reaction uh, we grew in confidence and we knew this is the right way the right way is to engage is to come forward and if you, you know, if you contact the journalists, they look would like to talk to you. I mean, they'll be open to you. Uh, and also, even politicians are happy to, to to listen to you. So, I mean, recently, the past few years, we, we've been engaging with more and more with politicians. They're also happy to to listen to us. We didn't know this before. And I think, you know, as I said, that lady who used to send her dog to chase me, my children. I mean, she's just. Uh, Maybe she, you know she saw me as a threat because she didn't know. I think once she knew something, and this must have changed her mind. So I think we need to. Uh, this helped the confidence. We know that if you engage with people, most of the time, not all the time, people do respond, do react, and do support. And as I said, when we set up Market Voice, the first year we had no office, we had no venue, we were jumping between the Guardian, the ITV, and other you know other organizations. They just said, "Welcome, come and use our rooms, our premises." I mean. We had journalists coming and doing the training for us. They come and we said, we invite them to come train us. They said, yes, we'd love to. They came to train us how to engage with them, how to speak. I think, you know, and everywhere we went, uh, we felt we, you know, people were very welcoming and supportive. And I think this is when we discover, you know, this is the right approach. And this gave us confidence, including universities. I mean, people like yourselves and your colleague, uh, Alison, when we first set up, we came to Scotland and we met with you and a few colleagues. And uh, Dr. Emma Jackson, she's still actually on our steering group. She's still supporting us. <laughs> so we have people who actually listen to us when we explain to universities, this is what we're trying to do. They said, great work, what can we do to support you? Uh, and I think this is this helped a lot. Uh, but uh, if you are on your own, isolated, and you don't know, I think you, you are scared. But when you be, when you are part of a, you know, a group of people, you maybe, if you're not very confident, uh, it gives you more confidence. And this is why, if you come to an organization or a you know platform, a charity, and work with other people, you feel uh, more empowered or more relaxed, more confident. And this is why recently, the past few years, a lot of our activities, we bring both, like in Scotland, Scottish people and migrants together to work together on a project, because this is where we provide the opportunities. I mean, Gamile said, those stories need a platform to be told. So we try to create those safe spaces and platforms where we bring people together Although they'll be talking about photography or videos or poetry, but we're actually providing space for people to meet in a safe in a way, non-threatening way. Uh, and it's easy to engage in a conversation, to build a relationship and friendship. And this is one way of actually uh, building the confidence of people to engage. And remember, it's not just us migrants who are afraid of engaging with other people, uh, but also, uh, you know, the host communities, they want to engage with migrants, they don't know how to go about it, and they don't know how to engage. So this way we facilitate that space. I mean, some of us have different experiences in engaging with people. So I remember the first uh, few years when I came here, I 
went to see some friend, knocked on the door, she was not there. I knocked on the neighbor's door thinking it's like Beirut. You knock a neighbor, ask him, oh, where's your neighbor? Have you seen her? And then I had this, uh, someone giving me a whole lecture that in this country, we mind our own business and we don't do this, we don't do that. And you know, she <laughs> terrified me <laughs> and I never want to speak to any British person after that. But this is was earlier on. But I guess when you provide this platform for people to engage, they do engage, they come together. I mean, in Scotland, we have it all from video making to poetry together, to Kaylee together. Uh, and people loved it and they came together and they engaged and they developed friendships and, you know, and connections. And this is the way forward. Yeah, Nazak, I was just remembering that I think the last time I actually saw you in person rather than listening to you or um, on a on a digital platform was actually at a Kaylee and um, where we were throwing you across the room. Um, <laughs> back to Lauren so she can bring a few other people in as well because I'm seeing some just lovely comments and questions in the chat. Yeah, some some very nice comments in the in the chat as well. Um Nuria um just wanted to say her internet is a bit shaky today so I'll just read her comment. Um so she says she never tires of hearing from you Nazek. Um she Aww. she volunteers with Migrant Voice in almost every event and workshops that's organized. And she thinks what's really important is that although very massive issues are tackled, the work is done in a very practical, simple and accessible way. And it's created many networks and friendship groups too. Um, and Tawana also kind of said that um, it's not just migrants, but it's the local folks that you, you are working with and, and getting into your, your organization as well, um, which has, has been one of the um, main contributors to how much effect and impact that it has. Um, I'm just having a quick look to see if anyone else has got any other hands up. No. Um, I just wanted to ask really quickly, both of you, both Ken and Nazek, um, that um, obviously Migrant Voice has been going for a number of years now. Um, have you noticed any change in the way um, that you're having to engage with the media now that the way that people are um, absorbing and getting their information is, is, is changing? You know, the, the ecology of how the news um, is is uh, distributed and and taken up by people. Have you had to um, change the way that you you work? I mean, we have to evolve gradually how we work with the media. I think, if anything, our uh, you know working relationship with the media has strengthened, and we're getting to know more and more journalists, and uh, we understand now what they need from us. So we prepare. <laughs> so now we prepare. We are able to better prepare. Uh, to support the journalists in telling our stories as well. So it is a collaboration. And I think we're getting better at it, uh, but the journalists still needs uh, the people affected to tell their own stories. I think you can never replace this. Uh, it's not just about the information, it's about actually hearing uh, you know, the story from the person you know, impacted by an issue. Hearing them telling their own story is very important. But uh, I think, uh, as I said, our relationship became stronger and stronger and a lot of the journalists now, uh, they trust us and they call us before uh, when they're working on a story also to run it by us, to ask us what else do we know or how accurate it is and how not. So I think this is really brilliant. And uh, the past couple of years we moved on, <clears throat> we want to step up our you know, work and we are now uh, meeting with the editors, not just journalists, because I think we've developed you know, a great relationship with lots of journalists and now we are we are trying to change if you want the you know <laughs> the editorial room culture if yeah. possible again by engaging with them by taking migrants to the editorial room by you know even editors to meet migrants themselves so in order to influence more and more the media coverage of migration so now we moved into meeting editors as well in a number of uh, in the regions that we are working great thank you right well i Unfortunately, we're out of time. I think we could just talk to you guys all day long. Thank you both so much for coming and speaking with us and attending and just the great discussion that we had as well afterwards. So just want to say our thanks again for being part of the Spring School and uh, wishing you all and everybody else here a very good rest of the afternoon. Thank you. And hoping that we get to do this in person next time. Absolutely. Thank Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts. A podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much.